O ye mountains high, where the clear blue sky arches over the vales of the free, where the pure breezes blow and the clear streamlets flow, how I've longed to your bosom to flee. O Zion, dear Zion, land of the free, now my own mountain home, unto thee I have come, all my food, hopes are centered in thee. Though the great and the wise all thy beauties despise, to the humble and pure thou art dear. Though the haughty may smile and the wicked revile, yet we love thy glad tidings to hear. O Zion, dear Zion, home of the free, though thou wert forced to fly to thy chambers on high, yet we'll share joy and sorrow with thee. In thy mountain retreat, God will strengthen thy feet. Without fear of thy foes, thou shalt tread. And their silver and gold, as the prophets have told, shall be brought to adorn thy fair head. O Zion, dear Zion, home of the free, soon thy tower shall shine with a splendor divine, and eternal thy glory shall be. Here our voices will raise, and will sing to thy praise, sacred home of the prophets of God, thy deliverance is nigh, thy oppressors shall die, and thy land shall be freedom's abode. O Zion, dear Zion, hunt land of the free, in thy temples will bend, all thy rights will defend, and our home shall be ever with thee. Welcome to LDS Real People Real Lives Podcast. This is Stephanie Colvin and I'm your host coming to you from Southern California. I am, as I was contemplating on what topic to cover this week, you know what? It didn't come as quickly as it normally does. Uh, Typically, I get done recording Wednesdays and Thursdays and by Sunday, I know what I'm doing. And you know what? This week, it just did not come as easily. And then, bam, it hit me today. And so I am going to use a talk by Elder Lawrence E. Corbridge. He gave it as a General Authority 70 um, back in, I believe, 2019 at the Pioneer Day Devotional to Survive or Thrive. And that was delivered on July 24th of 2019 at the Assembly Hall in Temple Square. I don't think he is a 70 any longer, uh, but this talk was quite powerful. So surviving and thriving like the pioneers. With my story and sharing a, a little bit about my life, you know, being on my third marriage, I remember very distinctly after my second marriage, feeling like I never want to get married again. And I was willing to live out the rest of my life pursuing my career and making that a success and then just being alone and having, um, you know, maybe trysts or meeting people that I could, um, you know, men that I could go out to dinner with and movies with and go to events with and that sort of thing and have dates. But I never wanted to get married again and take care of a man. I never wanted to merge our finances again and have to go through that all over again. And I was just done. I had two very, very 
challenging experiences with my prior husbands and then separating everything. And, you know, the way that I felt is that I was just a big failure at marriage. And so I'm never, ever going to do that again. And that was my way of surviving when I left my second husband, which was January of 2011. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know what the future held for me personally. I was not in the church at the time. I was not active. I was not going to church, but I always believed in the power of prayer. Um, I did really suffer for a few months afterwards. I was doing a lot of self-sabotaging type behavior and things that just did not make me happy at all. So by the time I met my third husband, who I'm going to be brutally open and honest with you, I was looking to meet somebody in a great area of location that I could visit on the weekends, spend some time with, go on excursions, and then just come home and get back to my life. And that's exactly what I was looking to do with my husband, Jed. Um, We laugh about it often now um, because I am about almost four years older than him. And here we are, fast forward, we've been married, we've been sealed, and we're, we're, we're thriving in our marriage. We're surviving and thriving in our marriage. But I really did not believe that at the time my future was bright as, as far as my personal life was concerned. You know, deep in my heart, I always wanted to be married to a kind man, a man who would be a, a good male role model for my two boys. And... A man who would really respect me and who I am as a daughter of God, as a woman, as a mother, um, who could see my accomplishments and and recognize my value and love me for me because I am very unique. I think we're all very unique um, in our own way. And our experiences are part of that uh, unique character building Uh, the choices that we make, the things that we live through and survive through and thrive through. And, uh, you know, looking back on it now, I'm grateful for those opportunities and experiences. I'm grateful that the Lord in his infinite mercy and love has always been uh, so merciful with me and giving me so much grace and so much love and forgiveness and understanding Um, But at the time that I had left my second husband back in 2011, I was just surviving. And personally, in my heart, I was I was in a lot of pain. I was hurting and I was in a lot of pain and I did not see a bright future for myself. Um, The only time that I experienced happiness is when I was with my sons. But even then, I was hurting so much because of the failed marriage and having to rebuild my life once again from scratch. And all of these doubts were going through my mind. Um, And again, at that time, I was not in the gospel. And so I was not utilizing faith to get through. I was honestly just using my grit and my fight and It's that grit and fight that has gotten me through some of the toughest times of my life. Um, So it's, it's been a blessing. And you know, that grit and fight has been acquired because of the experiences, because of, you know, the abuse at the young age, um, you know, having emotional and, and verbal abuse in the home. There was physical abuse in the home. And, you know, and that's when we were younger. And it's just, you know, it is what it is. It's a different generation. Um, 
but it was that those experiences and being exposed to that, that really at some point, even as a child, you just kind of take that moment inside yourself and decide who you're going to be. And I remember at one point, I think I was 10 or 11, maybe 12 years old, saying to myself that I was never, ever, ever going to let a man treat me poorly again. And so I became quite a fighter. As a matter of fact, I went to the extreme. I was a hothead. I jumped to conclusions and it made life way more difficult for me. And so I'm sharing that portion of my life with you because I want to show you how I've thrived. So again, I'm going to be referencing this talk, Surviving and Thriving Like the Pioneers by Elder Lawrence Corbridge. You can find it in the July Ensign of this year 2020 and he starts off by talking about he says with heavenly help and pioneer persistence we can not only survive adversity but also thrive because of it now there's that book um i I wish i could recall the exact title uh, about the pioneers about the martin hancock company and i think it's called the fire of the covenant And I read that book probably about five years ago, and that book has really stuck in my mind often, especially when I'm really pushed to what I feel is the brink of my capabilities. And I remember these people and everything that they did and they went through. And I'm so grateful for their example of courage, bravery, and faith so faithful. These are people that are walking and pulling these carts across the country in the worst weather conditions, often with very little clothing, uh, shoes that had holes in them that were torn or no shoes at all. They were running out of food. They ran out of water. Um, They were experiencing some of the greatest physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual pains that I can't, I, I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around it. And yet these people remain devoted to the Lord. And I always wanted to study out and find out why. Why when they're put through so much do they remain faithful and devoted to the Lord? And so I did go on a journey of sorts of studying and writing in my journal and thinking about these people in concert of still reading the scriptures like I always do the book of Mormon and the Bible and you know it's interesting because you see a common theme between all three books all of these people are going through some very difficult challenging hardships trials and things I'm sure that they never ever could believe that could happen to them and yet here they were finding themselves in the midst of this and reading how they responded and what they did and they never did or handled everything perfectly but they certainly were very good examples about doing the best they can to be faithful remain faithful to act on faith and to continue to push forward and persevere many of them with the grit and glory of a righteous fighter. And I have so much gratitude to these people and the examples that they've left and given us to to look to. And because, uh, you know, with the way that we are seeing the world now, uh, all of the divisiveness, I mean, it, it's like we can just cherry pick something out of the air and 
there's going to be people with many different opinions about it and they're going to be very vehement about it. They're going to be very passionate and fiery about it. And you just can't get anywhere when everybody is so passionate and fiery and and argumentative and, you know, there's just so much discontent and contention and uh, it's leading to violence. You know, it's leading to harm. It's leading to a lot of wickedness and evil. And, uh, you know, it can be very heart-wrenching and very disconcerting. You know, I often hear people say, why, why must we go through this all? Why must we experience this? And you know what? I'm sure the pioneers were asking themselves the same thing. But look at what they were doing. They were restoring the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel had been taken from the earth. And they were part of the restoration. This was something like 90,000 people that migrated to the promised land here in the United States of America. All to do what? to follow their hearts, to follow their beliefs, to follow their Savior and Heavenly Father and what they know to be true. That takes guts. And it's that attitude that helps us to thrive in our situations, survive and thrive. So Elder Corbridge um, goes on to talk about the pioneers, that there was nothing easy about their their lives and their journey and their story of the restoration. There was nothing easy about the children of God receiving and following, you know, the Lord's guidance from the beginning of time. Um, The best and highest road, of course, the road of greatest worth, the only road to fulfillment and eternal life is not ever, ever going to be an easy road. Uh, The hardship, the suffering, the disappointment, failure in faith, always leading to ultimate triumph have been the common lot of the faithful in all ages. Uh, When I think of the restoration, including the pioneers, I think of hardship and suffering. But I also have questions. And again, I'm referencing the talk by Elder Corbridge. And so the questions that he had, we're going to go over these questions because they're very very enlightening. Um, A lot of lessons and teachings are found in these questions and what the pioneers did. They're such wonderful examples, just as the books, uh, the saints, same thing that I feel towards them. Um, And of course it is about a lot of the pioneers during the restoration, just a different group of people. So the first question that he uh, asks is, why did so many intelligent people give up so much willingly to endure such great suffering to gather with the saints? I know in my life, I could ask myself the same question about why did I do this and why did I do that when I knew it was going to be so hard and so difficult, such a challenge. Um, You know, why did I choose to go ahead and have these babies and get married. Um, you know, we're talking having babies and divorce by the time I was 24. It's just ridiculous. Um, you know, in the world today, there are people, plenty of people who would have gotten abortions. Um, and yet I chose the harder road. Some would say it was the harder road. So going back to the talk by Elder Corbridge and that question, why did so many intelligent people give up so much and willingly endure such great suffering to gather with the saints? 
He says that this is a particularly relevant question today as some chart a course of ease, cherry picking among what the gospel, the restoration the church offer. They quietly hunker down in the routines of their lives and shrink from any level of inconvenience, sacrifice, and service, and much less the level of hardship willingly endured by the early members of the church. So why not accept the ordinances and the scriptures and live a good life without extraordinary sacrifice? Why not simply embrace a new religion and remain in place? Why uproot everything and everyone? Why leave one's family, home, and homeland forevermore to traipse off to some strange land, however great the promise may be? Why not build the kingdom of God in New England, the British Isles, Scandinavia, or wherever they call home? Couldn't the saints have simply lived the gospel where they were? Does faith, faithfulness, and righteousness require willing abandonment of almost everything? What do you think? He says, Our natural instinct, understandably, is to shrink from hardship, but it is a grave mistake for that to be life's primary objective. That kind of thinking wrongly equates the pursuit of joy with the hollowness of ease. While that has some appeal, it is a deeply flawed strategy because suffering and joy are not incompatible but rather essential companions. You can suffer and never know joy, but you can't have joy without suffering. So let's refer to 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 23. It says, And they would have had no children, wherefore they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. We must have opposition in all things. We must have things that are going to push back, that are going to stretch us and push us outside of our comfort zone for us to learn the very important lessons that we're here to acquire. Because remember, this is a proving ground. We are here to prove ourselves here with that we can return and live once again with our Heavenly Father and our Lord, Savior, and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Uh, Elder Corbridge goes on to say that um, the, the Restored Church of Jesus Christ was organized on April 6th of 1830. And in September of that year, let's see. In September of that year, the Lord declared, Ye are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. The decree hath gone forth from the Father that they shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this land. Over time, there were four gathering places, beginning with Kirtland, Ohio, which was 1831 to 1837. Then the pioneers moved to Missouri from 1831 to 38 followed by Nauvoo, Illinois from 1839 to 1846, and then finally Utah from 1847 to the early 1900s. 
In a series of wagon trains and a few handcart companies over 22 years, between 60 and 70,000 people gathered in the Salt Lake Valley. And by 1900, 90,000 saints had gathered to the United States. Approximately 50,000 immigrated from the British Isles. About 30,000 came from Scandinavia. And then the others came from Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Italy, France, Australia, and the South Pacific. This simply cannot be explained away as religious fanaticism, not on this scale. We're talking 90,000 people. And travel was not as easy then as it is today. It's one thing for a new convert or even a few zealots here and there to pack up a few things and leave everything else behind, blinded by a new faith. But it is quite another for tens of thousands of intelligent good rational people to do that in the same time frame and do it willingly and largely independently of others they were as charles dickens described them the pick and flower of england and other nations so how does anyone ever explain that the tens of thousands of times over there's nothing like it and there's no good explanation at least in human terms you cannot explain it away by the charisma of Joseph Smith, whom these immigrants really, they had never met him. And you can't explain it away as the power of a so-called cult either, not on the scale of what actually occurred. Some have said it was the result of a sense of community, but while a sense of community evolved over time, as diverse converts gathered and melded together in increasingly greater numbers, that was after they had already left their home and their homeland. A sense of community might have kept them together once they were together, but what sense of community would have urged leaving home in the first place? They didn't know anybody. They didn't know who these people that they were going to meet and gather with. So what about a need to find refuge from persecution and the evils of the world? Maybe here and there, but can that explain the scale of sacrifices that we're considering? Can't you hunker down at home and let the winds of scorn blow overhead? Another explanation is a common cause. Yes, the greatest cause on earth is to build up the kingdom of God. But why not take up that cause and build up God's kingdom at home? And this leads us to another explanation closer to the heart of the matter. Surely the gathering would not have occurred without the call of the Lord through his prophet to gather not only to Zion, but also to a temple where his people would be endowed with power from on high. Endowments, temple attendants, so, so very important. Now, Jane Charters Robinson was one of the tens of thousands that came over to the United States and she converted on the Isle of Man. And she said, in the year 1855, I, together with a younger sister, left home and sailed for Liverpool and arrived there next day for the purpose of going to America very much against my father's wishes. But I believed in the principle of the gathering and felt it my duty to go, although it was a severe trial to me and my feelings to leave my native land and the pleasing associations that I had formed there. But my heart was fixed. I knew in whom I had trusted. And with the fire of Israel's God burning in my bosom, I forsook my home, but not to gather wealth or the perishable things of this world." 
So in the end, all of the above explanations, I mean, they really do fall short. Um, There's no satisfactory explanation, at least in human terms, uh, because it was not merely a human endeavor, but rather the work of God. The story of the restoration, the pioneers, the westward migration, the willing and total sacrifice of tens of thousands, and the hardship and suffering, making the desert to blossom as a rose, is the story of God's hand bringing about his purposes. It is that simple. This story stands alone in history and is a testament to the truthfulness of the restoration and the work of God gathering Israel, which continues today on both sides of the veil. Both sides of the veil. The work is being done here and there. Make no mistake. So the second question that Elder Corbridge came up with is, you know, why did the early saints persist after repeated failure and constant opposition? They suffered so much. Why would they continue to push? I mean, it seemed like this unbelievable mountain that could never be climbed, and yet they continued to take one step after another. So going back to the article and and addressing that question, why did the early saints persist after repeated and constant failure and opposition? Some say that nothing breeds success like success. So if that's the formula for success, then the story of Joseph Smith, the restoration, the pioneers and the early saints really should have been a very different story because it is a story of repeated failure and unrelenting opposition. It's the story of ultimate success arising out of the ashes of repeated failure. The early saints were driven from home and lands in New York to Kirtland, Ohio, where they built more homes and a community And there they built the the first temple in this dispensation. After a 900-mile march, 900 miles, I can't even imagine, they marched to Missouri. Zion's camp failed to regain land from which the saints had been dispossessed. The bank established under the direction of Joseph Smith failed. From Kirtland, the saints were driven to Missouri, but soon an order was issued from the highest level of that state government to expel them. Some were massacred and others were beaten, tarred and feathered and left for dead. Many women were brutally, brutally assaulted and time and time again, houses were robbed. Food, wagons, tents and clothing were stolen. Livestock was driven off and Joseph Smith and the other leaders were imprisoned for many months. Opposition came from every direction, from without and within. There was apostasy, dissent, and betrayal even among the trusted leaders. We are seeing that already in the world today. There's dissent that comes from without and from within. We must be vigilant. The saints were driven from Missouri to Illinois, where out of the swamps of the Mississippi River, they built another temple in the beautiful, beautiful city of Nauvoo. Within a few years, persecution and discord eventually infiltrated Nauvoo as well, as we all know. And the prophet Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram were imprisoned and martyred by a mob of over 200 men in nearby Carthage. 200 men for Joseph and Hiram. 
The saints were driven into the bleak winter, at first without a clear destination in sight, and the temple was ransacked and burned. During the trek across the western plains, hundreds if not thousands would die along the trail. Once the saints arrived in the Salt Lake Valley, homes, farms, and communities had to be carved out of the wilderness. Surely some, if not many, question, if this is God's work, where is he? People ask a similar question today, and some lose faith because of their hardships. A daughter dies, and in the, their grief, the parents question their faith in God. Another thinks her life should be happier and better because of her righteousness. But is it more than, why me? Rather, it is, where is God? Why would he allow this to happen despite my faithfulness? God declared his purpose for the creation of the heavens and the earth, saying in Abraham chapter 3, verse 25, And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. So going back to my story, I was deflated. My strength, my fight was gone. How was I going to continue to persevere and build a life? Here I was in my late 30s with many more years to live. What was I going to do? I was lost. And I'm not really sure if I questioned God so much as I just gave up. And it was a horrible feeling when I look back on how I was at that time. I was a hopeless shell of a person walking around trying to figure out my life with really no desire to figure out my life. So going back to the story, the question is not whether we will be faithful when things go well, rather will we be faithful when they don't? Faith is faithfulness in uncertainty and disappointment. Faithfulness not to get one's way, faithfulness regardless of the outcome. That's tough. That is tough, but it is doable. This is a proving ground and it's worth making those tough, tough decisions. So back to the primary question, why did the early saints keep going after repeated failure and constant opposition? Why not step back from the lightning rod of the body of the saints, hunker down, keep the faith without talking about it so much and live a life of quiet devotion? Wouldn't that be the prudent course of action? Surely some quietly stepped away, but we know little about them. And in that fact alone, we find the answer to our question. Faith does not step back or hunker down. Faith is rarely, if ever, quiet or obscure. And in this case, silence is not golden. So that leads us to question number three. Question number three, what are the characteristics of people who not only survive, but also thrive in great adversity? So let's take a look at this. So what Elder Corbridge says, um, it's one thing to survive the desert, but quite another to make it blossom as a rose. It's one thing to survive, but it's another to thrive. What makes the difference? So going back to uh, the pioneers, just four days after arriving in the Salt Lake Valley, President Brigham Young, who, by the way, just a side note, he is known as the great colonizer. 
He is known as the one that led the saints to Utah and helped them colonize Utah State. So Brigham Young stated that, quote, he intended to have every hole and corner from the Bay of San Francisco to Hudson Bay known to us, end quote. Small settlements did start to emerge along the Wasatch Front almost immediately to the north and the south of the Salt Lake Valley. And within 20 years, the Saints had established approximately, get a load of this, 350 communities in the West. And that's not surviving, but thriving in hardship. Just 20 years, 350 communities in the West. While serving in Chile, Elder Corbridge says that his wife and uh, himself had experienced the fifth strongest earthquake in recorded history anywhere in the world. In the aftermath, they observed different reactions. They witnessed what some experts have termed the 10-80-10 principle which suggests that 10% of the people will handle crisis and trauma with a relatively calm and rational state of mind. They tend to pull themselves together very quickly. They accept the situation, make decisions to improve it and take action. However, the the vast majority of us, the 80% are immobilized, stunned and bewildered and wait for help to come or someone to tell us what to do. And that's who I was when I left my second husband in 2011. I felt immobilized. I felt stunned. I felt shocked and bewildered. And I just could not find my footing. It was just absolutely looking back on that. I honestly don't even know how I survived sometimes. So going back to Elder Corbridge's talk, he says, the group that we try not to be in, however, is the last 10%. And they're the ones that freak out and make the situation worse. Our missionaries in Chile at that time responded very quickly by helping others rebuild their lives and homes. So they were in the first group that top 10%, um, probably because they were on the errand of the Lord. Another characteristic of those who not only survive but also thrive is adaptability or coming to terms with a new reality. We are most rattled when our lives suddenly change, especially by events outside our control. I mean, if you really look at life, how much of life do you control? I feel like I control very little of my life. What I do control is my response and my reaction to it. Uh, He says, Elder Corbridge says, those who fare best are the most flexible and less dependent on their environment and the normal routines of life for stability. And this is more than optimism or a positive attitude. It is faith, which is different. Survivors and thrivers see things for what they are, good and bad, and they deal with them. Because let's face it, bad things happen. But as they did with the early saints, we must accept life's realities, even the harsh ones, and trust that with the Lord's help we may endure and endure it well and that all things, both good and bad, will ultimately work together for our good. As it says in Doctrine and Covenant section 98, verse 3, Therefore he giveth this promise unto you with an immutable covenant that they shall be fulfilled. And all things wherewith you have been afflicted shall work together for your good and to my name's glory, saith the Lord. And that is the promise as our experiences will work for our good. So right now, you know, my husband has extreme anxiety, OCD, and body dysmorphia disorder. Our gyms have once again been shut down, and he is someone that definitely relies on his environment and the routine of the day. 
So our lives have been very chaotic with mental illness in our lives on a daily basis because daily there are changes that we haven't had to deal with before because of this pandemic. On top of it, he's a teacher and things are changing at work. They are probably going to continue to do online learning here in California and he's been given two new classes. So instead of being able to teach the classes that he's already built up years of material and lessons for, he's also on top of the fact that we're having continued online learning, having to create lessons and instruction for two brand new classes. I mean, this is the worst case scenario for somebody who has impulsive, obsessive compulsive disorder. Worst case scenario. Every single day, it's like the earth is falling. If the earth was flat, we're teetering on it and about to fall off. I mean, this is how it feels in this house. Every single day, there's something going on. And it's always something, as you know, with anxiety that has to be done and done now. And it's always catastrophic. And so we're dealing with this again today. This is how my life is every single day. And I'm not mentally ill, but I've acquired anxiety because of my situation and my circumstances. And so I say to myself and to Heavenly Father, how do I survive, but not only survive, also thrive in these circumstances? How am I supposed to find joy and happiness when every single day anxiety and mental illness rule this house? It's tricky, but it's doable. And we have to work very hard at it, very similar to the pioneers. We too have to be very focused and dedicated. We have to use all the resources that we have at our disposal to refocus and to connect with our faith, with our Heavenly Father and our Savior, and to survive the day. But by the end of the day, I want to make sure that we've been thriving that day and that there's going to be something good that's going to come out of it. And so through my experience with my husband, I'm normally somebody who is very black and white. Uh, Before I met my husband, um, I was an introvert and I was kind of a, a naysayer, kind of a negative person. But when you marry somebody who has OCD and their OCD is negative, repetitive thoughts, like he literally does not have ability, any ability whatsoever to come up with one nice thing to say about himself or about his world, his environment, his circumstances. So being with him, I have learned to become the extrovert because with his mental illness, he's always caught up in his head. So he's the introvert. I've had to learn to become the extrovert and I've also had to learn how to hold on to my faith. I've described this before. How I hold on to my faith is I imagine Christ walking through my home and I'm holding on to his leg as he walks through the home and he carries me every step of the way and he's helping me to deal with my life, but not just deal with my life or survive my life but to also be grateful and love my life, to be thriving in my life. Because literally with the amount of mental illness that we are dealing with in this home 
on top of everything else from a lawsuit from this the the energy company to this issue going on with my son's truck for over a year i mean try to talk to your son about faith when he's done everything he can to get this truck up and going which he got this truck and it wasn't his fault that you know it was changed the computer on the truck was changed by the owner and he didn't tell us it wasn't his fault that it's been a mess and yet we continue to do everything that we can and it's never the answer it doesn't work it doesn't come through fast forward a year it's like how do i help my son understand that sometimes we just have to go through these hardships and experiences because i promise you it'll be for your good see i know this because i've been through it repeatedly but my son who's not in the gospel how do you teach that well, all you can do, and this is what I found, he's 25 years old. As I just shared with him literally yesterday, I want you to understand that the purpose of this life is to have trials, is to have hardships, is to have challenges, because that's truly the only way that we learn. And without the opposition, we would never know happiness and joy and excitement and, you know, just just that f- overwhelming... Oh, enthusiasm for life and for family and for job and for friends and for you know nature and stuff you just can't have that without opposition there must be opposition in all things you can't have the type of growth and progression that you want and that quite frankly we need in order to make it home to once again live with our father and our savior jesus christ and even our heavenly mother and that is the celestial kingdom So going back to the article, um, he concludes the article saying, Adapt with faith. I'm grateful for the marvelous heritage that we share. I testify of the hand of God in bringing about his purposes both in the early days of this last chapter and today. He says, I pray that we will be valiant and that our faith not be quiet or obscure, that we not step back or hunker down, that we adapt with faith to whatever our circumstances may be, knowing that all things will work together for our good if we endure them well. I pray that we will not only survive the adversities of life, but also thrive because of them. And I add my faith and prayers to that statement as well, that we can not only survive the adversities of life, but thrive because of them. So going back to my story, I met Jed um, on a dating app in August of 2011. And I did not expect anything but a weekend friend that I could come and hang out with. We could go out and have experiences and and, and excursions and just a companion. Um, My life took a quick turn as he injured himself and needed somebody to care for him. I volunteered and so we were together for six weeks where I had to help him do everything from shower to eat to getting dressed to getting him off to work and in that six weeks we fell in love. It was the most unconventional way to find each other and fall in love and then my husband found the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately not with me doing missionary work with him because with my first husband I was very adamant that he became a member he did he got baptized and quit going to church I promised myself that I would never do that again and that if the person that I chose to be with 
wanted to be a member of this church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They had to figure it out for themselves and want it and desire it for themselves and seek after it for themselves. So we had great spiritual conversations because he was just finding his spiritual legs. Um, I never talk about, talked about the church in particular, but I think it was those conversations, uh, who I am, the experience and exposure to my parents who are very much all in the gospel, and then, of course, the spirit that dwells in my parents' home. And then that further was the catalyst for Jed to find out for himself the truth of this purpose, why we're here, where we're going, and what we're meant to do. And so it was that journey for him that I got to be a firsthand witness and testimony to. It was such a marvelous, marvelous experience um, that brought us together. And then lo and behold, we fast forward nine years and we are all in the gospel. Our lives have not gotten easier. Uh, we still have a lot of opposition and adversity and trials that we deal with. But let me tell you, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, utilizing our faith as a shield and when we need to as a sword, holding on and keeping the commandments because the promise of the scriptures are when we keep the commandments, we will prosper, we will thrive. And I believe that wholeheartedly. So I do not fear the giant of electric company who's going to try to sue us and come after us. I don't fear that my son's never going to have a vehicle and we're never going to figure this out. As a matter of fact, I think we're getting closer to the solution. I don't fear the mental illness that I swear sometimes sets out to destroy us. Because I know with God and my Savior Jesus Christ and through my Redeemer, all things can be overcome because he has overcome the world and his atonement can empower us to also overcome the world. So this I leave with you with much love, much hope for whoever's listening. My goal is always to share and to be open and to be real and raw to help you in whatever way that I can, that you can learn from my experience and the particular articles and scriptures that I'm impressed spiritually to share, to stimulate you to do whatever you need to do in your life to survive and thrive. And I leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, remember to be kind for everyone you meet is truly fighting a hard battle. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay faithful. And until next week, God bless.